I'd like to extend that welcome from Jason. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm a member here at CEC. I'm part of the JF group, the 11 to 14s. They're meeting down the other end of the building tonight, so it's great for me to be with you tonight uh, instead. Now, some parts of the Bible cause us to feel a bit awkward, and it can be tempting to skim over those bits. We have the privilege of looking at one such bit of the Bible tonight, but we shouldn't be ashamed of it because it is God's Word. It is good, it is true, and so we should ask God for help as we come now to that. So let me pray again, and then we'll dive in to 1 Corinthians 7. Loving Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that as we look at these words tonight in front of us, uh, please would you help us to listen, help me to preach your word, help us to be challenged and to grow in our knowledge and love of you and of each other. In Jesus' name, amen. It'd be great if you could keep 1 Corinthians 7 open in front of you. And what we're looking at tonight is Christian truths for marriage and broader life. Last week, Danny helpfully preached on sexual immorality. And tonight, we're looking again at sex. So if you're new to church, or if this is one of your first times here, and you think that all Christians do is talk about people's sex lives, let me put your mind at ease and reassure you that we are slowly working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it just so happens that the passage tonight, again, includes things about sex and marriage. And to those of you who are single here tonight, feeling like this sermon isn't going to be remotely applicable to you, I want to encourage you right now that there are principles for all of us here, and it is good to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So as we look at the start of chapter 7, let's remind ourselves briefly of where we're at in this letter. Paul has been writing to the church in Corinth, who are a group of people who thought they had it all. And Paul's been demonstrating the difference between Christ's way of living and their way of living, the Christ-centered life and the self-centered life. Last week's sermon ended at the end of chapter 6 with Paul telling the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality, and to honor God with their bodies. Naturally, that's going to throw up some practical questions. And if we don't know something, and we want to know something, what you do is ask, be it a friend, or Google, or the Q&A at the end of last week's sermon. It's good to ask. And this is what the Corinthians have been doing in letters to and from the Apostle Paul. They've been asking him for advice. If you look down at verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. The letter now shifts from the things Paul has heard about in their church to the things that they've written to him about. So what we're going to see now is a series of advice for Christian living. The first point from verses 1 to 9 is have sex in marriage. Have sex in marriage. What did the Corinthians write to Paul about? Sex. This may have been a passing comment or a direct question, but either way, Paul addresses it. They said, verse 1, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
You might think that's a really weird attitude to have in our, uh, generally speaking, hypersexualized British culture. There is a growing asexual movement in the public square, but generally speaking, we're still dominated by sex around us. And this would have been weird to hear in the Corinthian culture as well. There was a temple in Corinth to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. And in that temple was temple prostitution, people having sex as an act of worship to Aphrodite. These Corinthians would have seen that and thought they would need to be living differently from the non-Christians around them. If the non-Christians are praising sex left, right, and center, then maybe they need to avoid it altogether to be holy. You can see how that attitude has led to convents and monasteries. But what does Paul say in response? Far from affirming this view, he says, verse 2, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. He's saying, don't abstain from sex. Have sex with your spouse. This is an incredibly positive affirmation about sex. It's the married couple's duty to have sex with each other. And if you remember, God's first command to Adam and Eve was, be fruitful and increase in number. Or in other words, have sex and make babies. It is good. But there are clear rules given. Sex is for a husband and wife. It's to be done in the marriage bond of a man and a woman. We saw last week that the Bible is very clear that any sex act outside of that is sexual immorality and a sin against your own body. Now, we don't like rules about anything, let alone sex. But our culture is now beginning to see how sexual rules might be a good thing. For example, the Me Too movement is incompatible with the belief that you can have sex with whoever, whenever, and however. We're also now seeing how, how porn changes the structure of the brain. And imagine for a moment that everyone only ever had sex in the marriage of man and wife. The spread of STDs would stop overnight. People would never compare partners. You could wholly give yourself to your spouse without fear. They would never leave you the next morning feeling used. There'd be no explicit or revenge naked pictures of people posted online. If you're married, have sex with your spouse. It is good and honoring to God. But it's not only that sex works best by dutifully sticking to the rule of having it within marriage. It's also an act of giving. Selfish sex for your own gain is not good and not fulfilling. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This means that sex is for each other, not primarily for your own pleasure. So much so that Paul says your bodies do not belong to yourselves, but to your spouse. 
My body belongs to my wife and hers to me. Therefore, the what's-in-it-for-me attitude has no place at all in marriage. You should be asking, how can I serve my husband or wife sexually as well as in all things? And in a male-dominated society in Corinth, this mutual decisions and mutual belonging to each other is wonderfully affirming to women. Marriage is about the other person. It's about giving to them. Sex in Christian marriage should be the best sex because you've promised to love each other. You've made the promises before God and you know your spouse isn't going to leave. You can be honest about what, you're li- what you like. You're secure. Now that's unfortunately not always the case. If this does not line up with with your experience and if you're struggling with sex in marriage the best thing to do is get help you may remember Daft preached on this in a series on sex and marriage and and singleness just over a year ago where there was more time to go into the practical details of, of help but I'll briefly echo what he said and say if you are struggling do get help speak to your GP or one of the pastoral couples or, or a couple that you trust There are some great books out there as well, which is so helpful. They cover a range of issues from differences between men and women to pain in sex to technique. A couple of good ones are Intended for Pleasure by Ed and Gay Wheat, and this one here, One Flesh by Greg and Amelia Clark, which has one of the best covers of a Christian book you've ever seen. That is more for newlyweds, but it is still great for everyone. So Paul in these verses is affirming marriage as the sexual union of a man and a woman in an exclusive, lifelong, covenant commitment. And because sex is such a key part of marriage, if there are issues, please do get help. Sex in marriage should be great. And here is the only reason to not have it in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The only reason to not have sex in marriage is so that you may devote yourself to prayer. As Daph said, and I'm the same, I've not heard anyone say, not tonight, darling, we're praying. But why not? What a great reason as long as it's mutual, and only for a limited time. It's for a short time, because Paul is very real. If you're not having sex with your spouse, you're going to be tempted to have sex elsewhere or linger too long with thoughts about someone else. The flip side of this coin is that you can't withhold sex as a weapon or to get what you want. That will only lead to misery and resentment. Therefore, come back to each other and give to each other. Have sex in marriage. Now, you can see this as have sex in marriage or have sex in marriage because Paul now moves on to give a word to those who aren't married in verse 6. 
He says in verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. While Paul has acknowledged that people are married, he does include a note here for people who are unmarried. We're going to focus more on singleness next week, but for now there's, there's a short bit about it. Paul is saying that he's not commanding people to be single, but it's his personal preference. That's his gift he's talking about in verse 7. There's the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. If you're single and you want to get married, then that's a godly desire. And if you want to get married, the, the context of this passage certainly makes you ask, is this selfless mutual giving something that I'm prepared to do for a future spouse? At the same time, if you're single and happily single, that's also a godly desire. Both single people and married people are gifted in different ways. That's their gift from God. We cannot then take what gift God has given people and look down on other people who are in a different situation to us and look down on them out of resentment or out of pity. It is God's gift. And we are to honor that. That's why Paul says in verse 8, Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. Essentially, if you're not married, there is nothing wrong with you. It is good. In a world that devalues singleness, this is great news. TV pumps the message to us that relationships, good. Singleness, bad. Here we have marriage, good. Singleness, also good. Let's not devalue what God has honored. Even so, if you are single, please don't take the gift of sex and have it outside of the context of marriage that it was created for. That's what we've seen so far. Have sex in marriage. Don't take what God has designed and think you can know better and have it outside of that marriage bond. Because it says, verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So if you're dating and you can't control your urges for each other, get married. Because if you don't, you'll burn. That's the literal meaning of the text here, to, to burn. The passions will consume you. Marriage is a serious and glorious thing. And if you're playing around outside of it, you're destroying your soul. Perhaps the advice then isn't, isn't to break up, but to get married and have sex in the context it was made for. And if you don't want to get married, then break up. <coughs> but if you do get married, and if you are married, stay married. That's the second point. Stay married from verses 10 to 16. Have a look with me at verse 10 there. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. The Corinthians needed a bit of help understanding marriage. 
when the people in Corinth became Christians, they were so enthusiastic that they'd turn their back on and reject everything in their previous life, which included turning their back on their marriages sometimes. So they could focus more on God. Paul's saying here, hang on, marriage is good. Stay married. Don't separate. It's honoring to God to stay married. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that it was Jesus himself who told people not to separate. But there's a healthy dose of realism in verse 11. But if she does separate, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. There may be tragic situations when a married couple do need to separate. It won't be helpful to try and list examples of what those situations are, but one obvious bad example is is violence and abuse. If there is violence and abuse in a marriage, then get out of the home, stay with someone else, and call the police. But, at the same time, the aim should be reconciliation. If you do have to separate for a time, don't start seeing other people because that's adultery. Stay living as if you were unmarried until reconciliation can be made. But how can Paul possibly be saying, aim for reconciliation, when I know a husband or wife who's been through X, Y, or Z? Marriage is a lifelong union ordained by God with promises made before him. Stay together when it's hard because marriage is not about your happiness. It's about honoring those promises. Can you see how high a view of marriage that is? And more than that, Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And how often do you commit adultery with the Lord? By rebelling against Him. By disobeying Him. By going after things unhelpful for your faith. By sinning. And does Christ leave you because of the grief you give Him? No. He is patient with you. He works in you. And he dies for you to unite you together. That's why divorce is so painful. It's a breaking up of a union that was never meant to be broken. And for that reason can cause more pain and more sadness than pretty much anything else. And again, if you are in a marriage and it feels like a total disaster, please do get help. For the sake of your safety, your sanity, and most importantly, your soul, please do get help. And if you're single considering marriage, make sure you realize the preciousness of this marriage bond. But what about if you're a Christian married to a non-Christian? Is divorce okay then? Well, Paul says, verse 12, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer 
and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Paul's talking here about situations where a couple weren't Christians when they got married, and now one of them has become a Christian. If this is the situation you find yourself in, you are no less of a Christian, you are no less loved by God, and you are no less glorious in His sight. Should you divorce your non-Christian spouse? No. Why? Because it's the Christian that can have such a godly influence on the family and maybe even help save the family. Look at verse 14. It's the Christian spouse who sanctifies the non-Christian partner and helps to make any children holy. This doesn't mean that the non-Christian husband or wife or non-Christian children go to heaven. It means that they're brought into the community of God's people. They're more prayed for. They're more loved. They see more of a glimpse of God than someone perhaps normally would, which may well result in them becoming a Christian. And verse 16 says, how how do you know whether you'll save your husband or wife? As tough as that home situation may be, that is an amazing reason to stay together. However, if in the tragic situation that the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, then let it be so. Verse 15 says you are not bound in such a situation. Our job as Christians is to live in God's peace and to display God's peace throughout our whole lives. If the non-Christian spouse leaves, they should leave knowing how peaceful you were because you still wanted to demonstrate God's love to them for the sake of their eternal soul. And that's how all of us should be living. We should live as Christians in the situation that God has placed us in. And that's the final point tonight. Live as a Christian in your situation, from verse 17 to 24. Live as a Christian in your situation. Have a look at verse 17 with me. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. This phrase, to live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them when God called them, is repeated again and shortened in verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And verse 24, remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And that's key. Remember, the Corinthians were so enthusiastic about becoming Christians that they were rejecting everything. Paul is saying here and urging them to stay where they are. Serve God where they are. God's Spirit works in our hearts and minds to make us more like Him. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that our outward circumstances change. Paul's talked about marriage, and now he broadens it to to everyone here. You do not have to change a life situation simply for the reason that you're a Christian. And he gives two examples, a religious one and a social example. So a religious reason in, in verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, why would someone try and change if they were circumcised or not? Well, circumcision was a sign of someone's religiosity. And there are many things we do today that we think make someone look religious and upright. Do they post Instagram photos of their Bible study? Do they have a Bible verse on display in their lounge? We have a big picture of Psalm 27 up in our lounge, but do those outward displays mean anything? Do they make us more of a Christian? Absolutely not. This is what Paul is saying. Those things mean nothing in terms of your service to God. What key, uh, keeping God's commands is what counts. And much of the best Christian service goes unnoticed by humans, but is treasured by God. Keep serving God in the situation that you are in. And social situations. Verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This slavery is not the same as the horrific African slave trade. The term slave here would apply liberally to a whole range of of jobs, including being a household worker for a rich person. People would sometimes voluntarily choose to enter into this slavery in order to get work. It certainly wasn't work with a high social standing and would have brought shame upon people in many situations. But Paul tells people in those circumstances not to be troubled by this. Because if there was a way out of slavery, Paul was all for that. He says, verse 21, if you can gain your freedom, do so. He knows it's hardly the most dignifying job and would prefer if they could be free. But at the same time, Paul is saying your value does not depend on the job that you do. For those who were slaves in Corinth, what they needed to hear was that in God's eyes, they are free. If you're in a horrible job, you are freer than you know. That's what the first half of verse 22 is saying. At the other end of the social ladder are those with the top jobs, where the world is their oyster. Paul reminds them and you that if that's your situation, 
to remember that you belong to Christ. You are a slave to Him and need to obey Him. Remain as you are, but remember whose you are. Now, remaining as you are doesn't mean that you should never seek a promotion or that you shouldn't work hard at your jobs. You're completely free to change jobs if you want. But you do not have to change your job simply because you're a Christian. Being a Christian is compatible with pretty much any social situation that we have. So be like Jesus in your situation. I said earlier that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And that's such a great picture because it means he'll never, ever, ever leave us. He's wedded to us forever. And by his spirit, he is working in you to be more like him in the situations that you are in. Verse 23 goes on to say that you are bought at a price. God has bought you. He owns you. You belong to him. So therefore, honor him. Everything we've looked at tonight is about honoring God. Honor God in your marriages, in your singleness, in your job, in your whole life. Live as a Christian in your situation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it challenges us and changes us through the power of your spirit. And I pray that as we go from here, that we would seek the help that we need to seek, that we would pray when we need to pray, and we know that's always. And we know that we're all sexual sinners. Lord, please forgive us. Please would we honor you in the situations that we're in, Help us to honor you in our marriages, to honor you in our singleness, to honor you in our work, to honor you in our relationships with other people, with our friendships. Would you be front and center of everything that we do? Would we be people that live peacefully, who love to honor you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Uh, how incredibly contemporary and practical are the truths we've heard tonight from the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 3, as the band comes up, in Ephesians 3, Paul writes these words, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the saints to comprehend the length and width and height and depth of his love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as Ben says, let's honor God. Let's look at the depth of God's love for us and sing two songs just about that. The deep, how deep the Father's love is and the deep, deep love of Jesus. <laughs>